Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it near with you in my Father's kingdom. That is Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. And welcome back to the Reformed Christian Podcast out of Texas. Texas. We are Bridge Radio, and we got another, another stacked, excellent program for you today. I'm your host, Julio Mod Rodriguez, and across from me is the AW as usual. Hello, everybody. And the boss himself, Mr. Steve Den Hartog. What's going on, people? And we are going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper. And All so, right. um, yeah, we got a lot of excellent questions here. The passage that I just read is uh, actually titled, mm. The Institution of the Lord's Supper. So we know throughout all generations of Christianity is has been used, it has been abused, it has been misunderstood. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that and also giving a proper understanding and perspective of the Lord's Supper. This is actually a conversation within the ministry that has been thoroughly discussed. So not only are we excited about the guests, but also, but more importantly, the 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 topic. So um, some questions we're going to be asking is, you know, is the Lord's Supper the real body and blood of Christ? Mm. Is it? Is it, guys? Mm. Um, also, too, should sin should people should people uh, practicing sin or professing Christians who are in sin, walking in sin, should they partake of the Lord's Supper? Yeah. And uh, so we're going to be throwing a little bit of little bit uh, uh, those questions out to our guests and some of our audience will know the answer to these and some of some of our audience who have just uh, come to know uh, Christ uh, might not know might not know and there might be some people that might not know but it's gonna be a really good discussion because I think it's very important especially as uh, uh, we take something uh, so uh, uh, important in remembering Christ and what he yep. did around the cross at the Lord's Supper and the importance yep. of that I think it's gonna be a great conversation especially the guests who we're having with I'm super excited I, I love <laughs> Don I, I love this guy yeah <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, I I introduced myself at the gospel coalition back in uh, what was it April or uh, back in April April and just the nicest gentleman. I mean, yeah. So wouldn't um, hurt a fly. Yeah, I mean, nice guy. Nice guy. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, guys, if you're new to this uh, program, we are a uh, nonprofit ministry, Bridge Ministries, right on the border of Texas. That is Laredo, Texas, and uh, on the border of Texas and Mexico. And uh, please visit our website at bridgemenlaredo.org, and please prayerfully consider supporting us on a monthly or one-time uh, basis, as this really helps us continue not only Bridge Radio, but all the gospel outreach that we do here in our community mm. and out into Mexico. Also, to be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We have 103 awesome episodes, um, everything from the sovereignty of God, eschatology, soteriology, Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, post-mill, and uh, a lot more, right? Right, Abe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And if you you got Spanish-speaking friends, let them know about uh, Bridge Radio Español. Yes. That's, it, those were the, uh, the uh, Bridge Radio Español, the series with uh, Eduardo's going on, mm-hmm. has been it's absolutely really good. good. He's been knocking it out oh, of the he's park. Been it what out. is it on? 
Uh, well, last week it was the Bible and Mass, mm-hmm. so that was uh, that was really good. Um, but I, I love what he's going through, and just he started off with the church, and now he's just going through the different topics of uh, what what the Bible says about these things of, that is related to Roman Catholicism and mm-hmm. the truth and not truth, and and it's and more of a teaching, teaching format yes. as a, yes. as yeah. opposed to a discussion. But yes, it's really yes, yes. solid doctrine, solid biblical theology. Yeah. So just uh, highly recommend it. Yes, yeah. thank you for cleaning that up for me. Yeah. Uh, to all the Spanish speaking community, <laughs> Bridge Radio Espanol, go check it out. So anyway, guys, are we ready to introduce our yes, guest? Yes, let's, let's do let's, it. Let's dive into the topic today. <laughs> yep. Doctor Duncan is the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary and the John E. Richards Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. Today he is going to be teaching and answering questions on the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Dr. Duncan, for joining Bridge Radio again. I'm thrilled to be here with you, brothers. You know, before before uh, the, we were recording the program, I was mentioning that Dr. Duncan just has a zing to it, like uh, like Dr. Love. <laughs> you know, it might not have the same irony, but I just like saying Dr. Duncan. Oh, yeah. You know, it has that same, it has, it has a good ring to it. So I, I think you have the best name in Christendom, just saying. <laughs> Dr. Duncan. It sounds Besides del- Jesus. <laughs> it but, sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, also, I think of Dr. Duncan just dunking uh, theology on somebody. I, we're just going too far with <laughs> yeah, his name. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm let's, sorry. Not, let's not get off track, but yeah. Um, so, Dr. Duncan, um, before we talk about the Lord's Supper, uh, I think it's important to recognize where and when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, can you please talk about the significance of where and when the sacrament was instituted? Well, Jesus was with his disciples in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover feast. And that that was very significant for a number of reasons. Uh, Ever since the temple had been built for uh, a thousand years, Jews had been coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, even though the Passover had been instituted more than 400 years before the temple was built while the children of Israel were still in bondage in Egypt. And it was first uh, observed uh, on on the night uh, when the people of Israel were, spa- were spared from the death angel that came to visit the plague of death on the firstborn of the Egyptians in fulfillment of God's threatening. But for a thousand years, the people of God had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem after Jerusalem became the city of David, and uh, and there they would observe the the Passover meal and the the sacrifice of the lambs, and uh, that was quite important for a number of reasons. Uh, One, it was important because the, the place where Jesus was was filled with redemptive historical significance. Uh, We're told in Genesis 22 that Abraham had been told to take his son Isaac to a mountain in the land of Moriah that the Lord would show him and there to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And uh, Abraham did that obediently. And when he got to the top of that mountain with Isaac and bound him uh, on the altar and prepared to slay him and offer him as a sacrifice, uh, the angel of the Lord spoke to Abram and told him not to do that. And a ram caught in the thicket bush was substituted for Isaac. A thousand years later, 
after David had sinned by uh, offering uh, by uh, numbering the the people of Israel, which was against what had been said in the law of God, the the king was not to number his soldiers uh, in order to trust in chariots and horses. He was supposed to trust in the Lord to defend them and. Uh, David sinned and numbered those people, and you remember God sent a plague against Israel. And uh, David, uh, you remember that was when David, the Lord said, you can either fall into the hand of man or you can fall into my hands. And David said, I would rather fall into the hands of the Lord. And so the Lord said, well, I'm going to send a destroying angel. And uh, 70,000 people died in Israel, and as the destroying angel was approaching the city of Jerusalem. He stopped above the threshing floor of either, depending on which passage you're reading from, Ornan or Arana, the Jebusite. One's probably the the Hebrew way you would pronounce the name. One is probably the Jebusite way that you would pronounce the name. And, uh, and, and the Lord spared Jerusalem. And there David offered up a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord for sparing Jerusalem. And uh, he bought that, fl- that threshing floor for an exorbitant price. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, not many years after that, his son Solomon would build the temple on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And there for hundreds and hundreds of years, sacrifices would be offered um, representing a substitute for the people's sins. And Chronicles tells us that the temple was built uh, not only on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, but on Mount Moriah. So uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem somewhere on the Temple Mound, and uh, that means that not many yards away from where Jesus and his disciples were that night was the place where Isaac uh, had been offered as a sacrifice and then a substitute had been made for him as a sacrifice, and where David had offered a sacrifice after Jerusalem had been spared, and where uh, hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of sacrifices had been symbolically offered through the Old Testament Mosaic ritual sacrificial system. And now here is Jesus, um, and he's instituting the Lord's Supper in the midst of a Passover meal that's representing a Passover lamb being substituted for the people of Israel so that they are passed over by the destroying angel that came to destroy the Egyptians. So it's, the, you know, the place where he is and the time that he's there and the event that he's attending are chock full of redemptive historical emphasis. So you've already mentioned that the, the time was during the Passover, and uh, you mentioned the Passover lamb. What other elements would have been present at this meal, and how is it important to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper? Um, as a result of these elements? Well, uh, you know, at a, at a Passover meal, if you look at Exodus chapter 12, now by the way, Passover seders have developed over the years, and there are sometimes six elements that appear at a Passover seder. But if you look at Exodus 12, where the Passover is first instituted, the, the prime elements that are mentioned there is, of course, the Passover lamb itself, which is to be roasted whole. Uh, it's, it's not to be boiled. It's not to be, it's to be roasted whole. It's very explicit 
uh, how that's to be done. And then bitter herbs uh, are to be present, and then unleavened bread. Now, we also know, of course, there was wine to drink. And as I say, over the years, Passover seders developed other elements, but at least those elements would have been there. Okay. Uh, when the disciples uh, gathered uh, to uh, take the Passover feast, the the, uh, the the roasted lamb and the bitter herbs and the and the bread and then the wine would have all been there. And uh, and and in fact, it's it's when you read the if you if you're reading Matthew 26 or if you're reading Luke 22, it's pretty easy to see how they flowed right from the Passover observance into the Lord's Supper observance. Now, the disciples would have, you know, all of them would have experienced the Passover observance, you know, 20 or you know more times in their lives uh, as adults. They would have seen that over and over. But they had never, ever seen uh, what Jesus did when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he simply took two of the elements that would have already been present in the Passover meal, and he utilized them in a way that they had never been utilized before as he instituted the Lord's Supper. So it was just as if Jesus, it was pointing to fulfillment in Christ, those two elements. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. When, when, For instance, when Jesus takes bread and wine, and then he uses the language, this is my body and this is my blood, the disciples, I think, would have immediately recognized hmm. that what Jesus was saying was that he was the real sacrifice, because sure. body and blood are the constituent parts of an Old Testament sacrifice of atonement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when 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 you if you if you were the head of a family who went to the temple uh, to offer, you know, the the the, uh, the 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 sacrifice of atonement on behalf of your family, um, when when you arrived, what would happen would be the animal would be the the throat would be slit. And the blood would be drained into some sort of a container. Hmm. And then the carcass of the animal would be hoisted onto the altar. Parts of the meat would be given to the priest for the priest to use to eat, because priests didn't have land and cattle like the other tribes mm-hmm. had. But then the rest of the, the body of the animal would have been incinerated hmm. on the altar as a sacrifice, hmm. and the smoke would have gone up. And then the blood would be taken and applied both to the people and to the altar. And so body and blood would have immediately registered to the disciples. Jesus is talking about himself as a covenantal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, if you take seriously the language of the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews makes the point that you know, none of the Old Testament sacrifices forgave sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins, yeah. but that Jesus once for all, through his own sacrifice, uh, forgave our sins. And so I, I think what Jesus is clearly communicating to the disciples there is, I'm the Passover sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I'm the sacrifice 
of atonement. I'm the sacrifice that's going to effect the new covenant. It's my body and my blood that is going to be the sacrifice. All of the previous sacrifices merely pointed to me. They were prophetically, symbolically pointing to the one real sacrifice. So when he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he says, this is my body, Hmm. this is my blood, he's saying, I'm the real sacrifice. He's explaining his death to the disciples before it happens. Hmm. He's wanting to make sure that they understand that when he dies tomorrow, it's not an accident. Hmm. It's it's not that somehow God is out of control and that Jesus' plans have all gone gone wrong. It is that he has come to die. Remember elsewhere he says to his disciples, no man takes my life from me, hmm. but I lay it down of my own accord. Wow. And uh, in, in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not, tomorrow I'm really not going to be a murder victim. You know, sometimes we we hear people talk about Jesus's death as judicial murder. Yeah. Now, when they do that, a lot of times all they're trying to say is that it was illegal, that it was immoral, that mm-hmm. it was illegitimate, even under Jewish law or Roman law. And that's that's very true. All of those things are true. His death was immoral from the standpoint of the people who wrongfully and sinfully affected it. But from another standpoint, he wasn't murdered at all. Uh, in fact, he, he will, on, on the cross, he will say, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus is the only person who decided when he was going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, most people who were crucified would linger, sometimes for days, sometimes for much longer than that. Uh, Jesus, in the matter of an afternoon, dies. Well, in part, that's because he decided when he was going to die. And the the point of all that is, he's saying to his disciples, understand that what's going to happen tomorrow doesn't mean that God is not in control, doesn't mean that my plans have failed. I've come here for the purpose of dying. In John's words, I am the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And that's what he's pre-explaining to them in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is really to pre-explain to them the meaning and significance of his death. Uh, Dr. Duncan, in every gospel account of the Lord's Supper, there is an emphasis of breaking of bread. Why is this important? Well, again, um, I I think that the and, and Jesus will explain that language when when he breaks the bread, mm-hmm. he will say, take, eat, this is my body. And so he's saying that the, the bread represents his body, which just like in the sacrificial animal is slaughtered, is broken. Now we know that the bones of the sacrifice are not broken, and that's John makes that clear. Jesus' bones aren't broken, yeah. but his body is broken or crushed or bruised in the sense that his body dies. His mm-hmm. body bears the um, it, it bears the penalty of death mm-hmm. that we ought to have borne. His body actually dies. That's one of the you know Paul will emphasize in First Corinthians fifteen that it's essential to the gospel that Jesus was crucified and dead and buried and raised again from the third day. So his real human physical death was absolutely essential to the to our salvation. Why? Well, because God told 
Adam all the way back in the garden, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Um, so that the penalty of sin is death, and, and Jesus' body is involved in that death. And even when he says, you know, it breaks the bread, even the mention in conjunction of that with his blood represents that, because in in uh, Old Testament sacrificial ritual, blood is a sign of the life of the animal. The life of the animal is in the blood, and when that blood is drained from the animal, it's it's indicative of the life of that animal being drained. And so, when he breaks the bread, he's he's referring to the breaking or bruising or crushing, to use the language of Isaiah fifty three. Of, of his body, of his self, of his life, on behalf of the, of the people of God, uh, that he might bear our penalty of sin, which is death. Um, just a, a, a quick question. Um, normally when they, uh, Romans would crucify people, they would break their legs, right? Is that was a standard when they were just on the cross too long so that they would die faster? It, that, that's, you know, also so if they were going to leave them up on the cross, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't not only push up, but, you know, somebody uh, alleviate them and, and them run away. So, mm. yes, it would have been typical for bones to be broken uh, on victims of crucifixion, and sometimes that might be used to hasten their death because they could no longer push themselves up to get uh, breath. A lot, a lot of times people died on the cross because of uh, basically asphyxiation, because mm. of the way that they were hanging. They could not get enough breath into their lungs to keep to keep breathing. But the 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 the, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus bones were not broken, yeah. uh, but instead what the what the, the the Roman guards did was pierce him with a spear to assure that he was dead before his body was taken down. Wow. It's just a reminder what Jesus Christ uh, went through. I mean... Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. An another uh, uh, topic that I wanted to really hit on today in regards to the Lord's Supper, Supper especially since we live in a predominantly Roman Catholic uh, community. Um, how do we know that whenever we're partaking in the Lord's Supper, that how do we know it's symbolic and not drinking the blood of Christ and eating the body of of, of, of Christ? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, the 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 doctrine that is held uh, by our Roman Catholic friends, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is also a, a very similar teaching, is held by. Greek Orthodox folks mm -hmm. is a, it's a very ancient doctrine that that kind of teaching you know you can find it around in the you know in the fifth century of the church and and it's finally developed in in its in its uh, sort of full theological form uh, by the Middle Ages so it you know it's in development over a thousand years but it's it's an error um, and at I sus my, my own sort of church historical um, read on it is it is an error that grew up uh, out of a misunderstanding of what some of the early church fathers were saying in the context of the Gnostic controversy. Um, okay. Do you remember in the second and third and fourth centuries, there was a, a group of people that viewed themselves as Christians, mm -hmm. but they denied a number of essentials of, of Christian doctrine, and they were known as Gnostics generally. They had There were a whole variety of them. But 
many of them held to a view of the person of Christ called the docetic heresy. Uh, that is, they denied the full humanity of Christ. And over against them, many of the early church fathers, including uh, people like uh, Irenaeus in uh, Lugdunum or Lyon in southern Gaul, uh, would use the Lord's Supper as an argument against them. And, and the, the, the argument would go like this. If Jesus only appeared to be um, human and to have flesh like ours, then why did he say, this is my body, this is my blood? Now, that's actually a great argument. In other words, the argument goes, why, why, would, why would Jesus have been talking to his disciples about his body and his blood if he didn't really have body and blood. And of course, the Gospels go out of the way to show that Jesus' body was recognizably human even after the resurrection because he eats fish and he does things that, mm. that human bodies can can do. Um, and uh, in, and you know, he allows Thomas to touch his hands and sides mm-hmm. and things of this nature. And so uh, in the second and third centuries, you had church fathers saying, well, you know, well, what are we doing in the Lord's Supper when we say, this is my body, this is my blood, if yeah. Jesus really didn't have a body? That's a good argument. But if you then deduce from that that, aha, that means that the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ, then that's a bad deduction. And, it, and it, it's actually a bad theological deduction that leads to a serious theological error. And I think one simple way to explain to people why, why you know, you don't, you, you know, we, we don't believe that we are literally partaking of the body and blood of Christ would be to say, remember that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and he holds that piece of bread and he holds that uh, cup uh, before the disciples on the night of his betrayal, he himself is standing there. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it, he, he, he's, he's holding this bread. None of the disciples would have gone, oh, he's saying that somehow this bread and this cup have magically become his body and his blood. None of the disciples would have thought that. They would have immediately understood that Jesus was using representative speech, that that is, that the the, the bread represented his body, and the, the cup, the wine, represented his blood. Um, and Jesus used that kind of language all the time. Uh, you know, I'm the door, uh, et, et, et cetera. And, and nobody thought, oh, well, Jesus is the door, uh, a sure. physical door. Yeah. Uh, he used representative language in order to, to teach, to inculcate, to explain important truth. So I think the disciples um, would have immediately thought, because there was no, you know, nowhere in in Jewish history, in fact, it's explicitly forbidden in Jewish ritual services that they would ever drink blood. They were never allowed to drink blood. So none of them would have been thinking, okay, he's saying that we need to literally drink his blood, uh, or we have no part of him, or we're not saved. Um, they would have understood that he's what he's doing is he's explaining what he's going to do tomorrow. This would have all made sense to them after the resurrection, after Jesus came and talked to them again. It's very clear that Peter gets it in Acts chapter 2 in a way that the disciples didn't understand it on the night when Jesus was 
speaking to them there in the upper room and even earlier in his ministry. He's been talking with them about this for a long time, but they're having a hard time taking it all in. And it's only after the resurrection uh, and after Jesus explains everything again to them that the disciples begin to fully understand the significance. But there's no indication that any of them would have thought that the elements sort of magically became his physical body or his blood. That's something that really grows up in Roman Catholicism, uh, especially in, in the Western Church, from about the 5th century all the way uh, into the high middle ages and then it's it's finally codified in their in their doctrinal statements um, in in the in the 12th 13th and and 16th centuries um, but it is it, I, I do not believe that it is either a teaching that you can actually take back to the earliest days of the church, or that is a teaching that finds any support in the New Testament writings themselves. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Duncan, you've are, you've been going through just uh, the wine and the blood um, and, and the meaning of that. Is there anything else that you would want to add to to the meaning of uh, the cup or the wine and its sacraments uh, that you have not already mentioned so far? Well, you know, one would be, you know, in Luke chapter 22, uh, it, it's, it's very interesting. Um, uh, in Mark and in Matthew, when Jesus is explaining the cup, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. And th- that language clearly ties the meaning and significance of Jesus' bloodshed to the covenant sacrifice in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. You remember when Moses at Mount Sinai offers the covenant sacrifice on behalf of Israel. Mm. Uh, Before he sprinkles the blood on the people in the altar, he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Mm. And Jesus uses the exact same language. It's language that you find in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the, we call it the Septuagint, with one word change, the personal pronoun my replacing uh, what we have in English as an indefinite article, the. So he, he says, instead of quoting directly Exodus 24, 8, this is the blood of the covenant, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. So again, Jesus is making it clear that his death is the real sacrifice. The Mm. sacrifices that Moses made are not the real sacrifice. His sacrifice is the real sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins, but he, once for all, uh, satisfied uh, for the forgiveness of our sins, Mm. is the argument of the the book of Hebrews. When you look at Luke 22, the language that is used there comes out of Jeremiah 31. Um, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So that what what Jesus is saying as he explains the cup to the disciples is that his death is actually going to bring about all the promises that God has made in the new covenant prophecies that he gave to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Amos uh, 
and and the other later prophets of the Old Testament. Of course, the word or phrase new covenant is only used once in the Bible, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, but there are numerous parallel passages in the in the later prophets, sometimes using language like um, the everlasting covenant uh, or the covenant of salt. Um, there different. They're, they're, there's different language used for it, but the the idea is this: in dying the next day, Jesus is saying to his disciples, "I am going to bring about." the realization of promises that you have been waiting for based on the prophecy of Jeremiah for 600 years. I'm going to do it tomorrow uh, in my death. I'm going to effect the new covenant that my people have been looking for for six centuries now by my death. Hmm. Wow. So going back to the differences between the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper and, uh, for example, the Lutheran view as well, the Reformed view would be that um, we don't believe in transubstantiation, which is the Catholic, or consubstantiation, which I believe is the Lutheran view. Um, So how would the Reformed view differ from those? Is it it simply a remembrance, or is there something more? Uh, the, the the Reformed reject the idea that there is any kind of a physical, bodily presence of Christ in the elements. Mm-hmm. The, the nature of our communion with Christ is, is true and real, but it is a communion that is effected by the work of the Holy Spirit, mm. not by some sort of magical mm. presence of the physical body of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Uh, if, if you hold to an orthodox understanding of the person and work of Christ, and somebody asks you, where is the body of Christ now? The answer is, it is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Mm. And the, the, the physical human body of Christ is not ubiquitous. It's not everywhere. It's still a human body. And that means it is not spatially able to be everywhere at once. So you actually have to have a bad Christology before you can believe that Christ is really or physically present in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. And and that that's a problem not only for Roman Catholics and, and Greek Orthodox, but also for um, our Lutheran friends. So the, the Reformed view is not that the Lord's Supper is merely a remembrance or a memorial. We, we believe that it's a, re, it's a means of grace, and that we do really, yet spiritually, commune with Christ by faith, by the Holy Spirit, uh, in the Lord's Supper, but not because he's physically present in the elements. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a super important point. I was I was reading a little bit of what Calvin had to say about that in the Institutes in chapter in, in book four, and uh, he he really fleshes that out. Uh, very well. And I think that it's really important to understand that, you know, it's not simply a remembrance, you know, we're not just looking back in time and, and, and you know, remembering what Christ ha- has done for us. That we are, but we're also in a 
spiritual sense, communing with Christ, communing Amen. on Christ. And uh, so it's, I love the significance of that, even though it's not, uh, you know, a physical partaking, so to speak, there is a spiritual, real communion that happens Absolutely. when we take, Absolutely. take the Lord's Supper. And I love, you know, my, I, 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 I wrote a chapter on this in a multi-authored uh, collection of essays on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I, I tentatively titled my sort of view, you know, my, my characterization of the Reformed view as the true communion hmm. view. And I, I subsequently read an article by Sinclair Ferguson where he used that language, and I thought, well, I'm validated. If Sinclair <laughs> Ferguson uses that language, That's right. then I'm validated um, in my in my representation. And by the way, his article on that is, um, it's either found in a Feshrift for William Still or for James Philip. I can't remember. Mm. It's, it's a Feshrift for a famous Scottish preacher where he writes on the Lord's Supper. And it's one of the finest short articles I've ever read really? on the Lord's Supper, hitting all of these points that you're talking about wow. right now. No, the, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace it's more than simply a memorial. It is a memorial. I mean, co- covenants are memorialized. That's sure. what they are in the Bible. They're sure. you know, calling to remember uh, God's covenant promises is something that goes all the way back to Genesis nine. So, memorializing and remembering is a very important thing in the Bible for covenants. So that's certainly there, but. The, the the idea of uh, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace is it is something which God has appointed as a means whereby uh, our souls commune with Him, and uh, so it, it you know we do believe it's a means of grace. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So with all that said, how how important should the Lord's Supper be in Christian faith, life, and practice. I know you know sometimes some churches and, and and just individuals could really take the Lord's Supper kind of flippantly. You know, just kind of another thing that we do once a month. Um, how important should this mm. sacrament be in the eyes of a Christian? Well, I mean, frankly, um, it, one of the jobs of every good Bible believing pastor is to explain to his congregation the meaning and significance of the means of grace, including the sacraments or ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, so that they might more fully appreciate what an enormous privilege and help they are. And, uh, and, and I think unless pastors take time to explain from the Scriptures the uh, the significance of the Lord's Supper and, and how we are to rightly partake of it, then I think it's unlikely that people will ever be raised to a high esteem of, of the Lord's Supper. I do think, I think what you say is probably true. I think in probably in most evangelical per- churches, there is not a sufficient appreciation of what a blessing and privilege and how important the Lord's Supper um, and of course, baptism as well are as as means of grace, and so that's something that we we've, we've got to do a good job of teaching. And then I think when we administer the Lord's Supper, I always, in the course of administering the Lord's Supper, try to teach or remind my congregation. Hmm. Um, 
some important biblical truth about it so they might appreciate more what they are doing. Mm-hmm. I just think it's very important for, for people, for it, 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 lest it become empty ritual, yes. yeah. lest it become devalued, yeah. or, or lest it be, be treated superstitiously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People really need to understand why it is we do what we do and how we do it. Yeah. And that's just something we have to constantly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because our, our congregations are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. You know, even even if we're pastoring a, a fairly small, small fellowship of, of believers, there's turnover over yeah. time. You know, people move right. and new people come in. And, and so you've got to constantly be teaching your people the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, another another question that I, I wanted to ask was, um, should Christians who are practicing sin or maybe ha- are stru- struggling conscience, co- with their conscience, should they partake of the Lord's Supper? This is a conversation that we've had here at Bridge Ministries, and I would I would kind of I would love to get your thoughts on this. Well, I, I think I think I think you have to be specific about that. Sure. You know, if if you're talking about a Christian who is struggling with sin but is not repentant of that sin then there might be one answer and if you're if you're talking about a christian who is under conviction uh who 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 hates the sin wants to stop the sin uh, is doing everything she or he can do to fight against the sin, then the, then the Lord's Supper is precisely what that Christian needs. Mm. So I, I think for me, sometimes the the question is, what is the state of the of the of the believer's attitude towards sin? Mm. Uh, you know, so for instance, if David had been our uh, church member. Uh, during the the months of time that he was unrepentant for his, uh, you know, uh, taking Bathsheba unlawfully, uh, you know, utilizing his power and and taking her sexually, killing her husband, covering it up. I mean, he broke every single one of the Ten Commandments. During the months that, uh, you know, had had we known that as as his pastor, uh, during the months before he came to repentance, um, in under the con, under the conviction of the of the exhortation of Nathan, I think our answer would have been no, David. You don't need to come to the Lord's table. But after David repented, then we would want him to be at the Lord's table. So, I think part of the answer to that question is: Do you have a a Christian that's persisting in in an unrepentant state mm. who needs to be uh, brought to conviction, yes. or do you have a Christian that's that hates sin and is repented of it and is wrestling with it, but still it's a besetting sin, and he or she is fighting it, and uh, and and so that may take some pastoral care and sensitivity. And look, different Christians have different inclinations. I, I know in in Scotland. Uh, especially in the Highlands, there is, uh, and especially amongst Presbyterians, there is such a high view of the Lord's Supper that it's almost like only super Christians 
can take the Lord's Supper. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and that's just that's a wrong view of how the means of grace works and how mm. we ought to approach yeah. uh, the Lord's Supper. And so Scottish Reformed Presbyterian ministers often have to remind uh, Christians in that setting, look, people, the, the you know, the Lord's Supper is for sinners. Mm. <laughs> that's we, Sinners need the Lord's Supper, mm, uh, right. just like Christians need the gospel. Mm. Um, on the other hand, it might be in some evangelical churches that you have a situation not unlike Calvin had in Geneva, uh, where you have people that are, you know, they're involved in marital affairs and or they're 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 in, involved in public injustice and they're unrepentant uh of these things well you know you you may have to confront those things yeah. as pastors because the the point is all of us need to come to the lord's table with a recognition that we need what is provided to god uh for us in jesus christ and that's held out to us in the Lord's Supper. And if we are unrepentant in our sin, then we're not acting like we need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think part of that question requires the, the pastor to know his people well enough to know how to exhort different people in the congregation differently about their attitude towards the Lord's Supper. You're going to have some people that are lax that you probably want to warn. And then you have probably have some other people that really ought to be coming to the Lord's table, but their consciences are are weak and frail, and you may need to exhort them to come to the Lord's table. So every pastor is going to have to try and you know, learn what the, the tendencies and the besetting sins and the temptations and the instincts of his congregation may be, and, and then address that question that way. Sure, sure. Wow. All right, Dr. Duncan. Well, that flew by. It did. Yeah, I looked at the clock and I was like, well, we've got to land this plane already. So, um, well, Dr. Duncan, before we always end the program, we always love to allow our guests to share the gospel. We know, you know, talking about the uh, Lord's Supper isn't isn't going to save uh, uh, somebody and bring someone to saving faith, but the presentation of the gospel is what's going to be the means by which God draws someone to saving faith. So, uh, Dr. Duncan, for our audience, um, could you please share the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hmm. Christ came for sinners. Uh, He who spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things. Christ at the right time died for the ungodly. He who became he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of these are different scriptural ways of describing the fundamental realities of the gospel. God created us and made us for himself. He is our loving creator. He, he gave us everything that we have and are and made us in his image, but we rebelled against him. All of us rebelled against him in sin, and we deserve punishment. But in his love and kindness, he gave his son to live and die in our place, to be buried and to be raised again for our justification. 
so that all those who trust on him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel are forgiven of their sins, welcomed back into the arms and family of God, and begin to walk with him now and forevermore. And we show our gratitude and we fulfill his purposes in us when we walk in godliness with him according to the word, by the work of the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're not saved by that goodness. We're saved to that goodness by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's a short summarization of what we believe about the gospel. Amen. And a good one, too. And a good (laughs) one. Uh, Dr. Duncan, for uh, our audience who maybe want to have a a book about the Lord's Supper, would, would there be any recommendations or even articles? I know you mentioned one, but that would be great. Yeah, the the Sinclair Ferguson article is so good. I wish I could tell you the book that it's in uh, right now, uh, but th- there are uh, one one little book of meditations on the Lord's Supper that might be helpful to people. Is a book that was uh, is a collection of sermons that were preached by a Scottish Presbyterian minister on uh, named Robert Bruce. And it's, it's just something like Meditations on the Lord's Supper or tr- a Treatise on the Lord's Supper. It's just a little book on the Lord's Supper, basically made up of sermons by a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Robert Bruce. It may even be called The Mystery of the Lord's Supper, mm. but that would be a wonderful little book. All righty. All right, Dr. Duncan, well, thank you so much for joining us again. We will definitely be reaching out to you again later on for maybe another topic. So, um, But it was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you so much. That's great. It's been great to be with you today. All right, guys. Well, that's that's a wrap. I felt like I went to a seminary, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just took a course in uh, the Lord's Supper. <laughs> I just, I'm going to have to listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's he's a brain, a wealth of knowledge, and just a solid uh, preacher and teacher. It just I, flows out of him. You it can, does. You can tell he's taught this. A few times before. More than one time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed the program. I hope you really got a proper understanding and perspective of the Lord's Supper. Um, Please like and share this program. Uh, And as always, we always end the program with one question, which is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll see you on the next edition of Bridge Radio. Thank you.